taken to wearing stock shirts and his boots stay shine. Keeps that old truck neat as a pin. Picture gazes down from his visor at an empty dash where his fit cup should have been. Hey, running buddy, what'll you say to a 12 pack? Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, little back stalling. Running buddy kicking things off for us on the Lone Star hey, Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies. Uh, thanks to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, as well. Man, we have got a great show lined up for you today. I'm pumped, and I'll tell you all about it here momentarily. Uh, but first, I hope that you guys are taking time to socially distance in the great outdoors during this crazy time that we're living in. Um, fortunately, I took the whole family to the deer lease last week, and we had just a hell of a good time. Kiddos, that's like their favorite place to go. And, you know, with no school and no sports, uh, they've got the time to do it whenever we want to go. So we went out there for, we spent three nights out there, and uh, Henry and I shot a hog. I shot the hog, but he sits with me on Thursday. Got a coyote on Friday and uh, a turkey on Saturday. So a little bit of everything, and, and the kids got to see a ton of wildlife. Of course, they love riding around in the ATV as well. And and Saturday, I slept in. It was great. Uh, leisurely made the family breakfast and then got a picture from my stealth cam sent to my the app on my phone, and, and there were some turkeys in this uh, one particular area of the ranch. I was like, ah, let's get ahead over there. Jumped on the e-bike. Literally threw a couple decoys in the trail, sat down, made one calling sequence on the slate, you know, and then gobble, 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 gobble. It wasn't five minutes before four turkeys showed up, but only three left. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a great turkey season. I think I've hunted a total of about an hour and have tagged three birds. Last year I hunted between nine and ten full days and got skunked. It's crazy how things change from season to season, but uh, yeah, I will take it, no doubt about that. Um, here's what's on the docket for today. We're going to visit with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason on the status of the hunting industry during a global pandemic. Also, what about giraffes? Did you know that the anti-hunting community is trying to add giraffe to the big five, make it a big six. Why would they do that? Uh, so that they can control importation and ultimately harvest. We're going to talk about that as well as some possession. That's right. Trophy possession laws in various other states that uh, are going to blow your mind. Lots of stuff coming up with Corey. Then a hunt of a lifetime turns into Truly a nightmare for our friend Britland Goria, who had traveled to Cameroon to hunt Lord Derby's Eland, along with Lion. And, uh, yep, Safari got cut short, and she and her husband ended up basically marooned in Cameroon as all international flights were canceled. I mean, here's a couple of Americans sitting in Cameroon. How the hell are they getting home in the middle of a global pandemic? Uh, talk about an interesting couple weeks stuck in a hotel room. Um, and 
We'll find out if she did get her Eland or Lion prior to the safari being cut short. So uh, fascinating stuff coming up with Britt. As I told her, I'm glad it was her, not me, that was stuck in Cameroon. Third world country during something like this? Uh, no thanks. I'll uh, take my chances here in America. Uh, but that's what's on the docket for today. Going to be a good one. Um, let's do this. Let's do a quick giveaway here. And today I've got a – let's do another Lone Star Ag Credit giveaway because I've got a camo blind bag cap, uh, shotgun sleeve, and a collapsible water bowl for your hunting buddy, your retriever or your upland dog, hog dog, whatever. Uh, Belle loves hers. I love it because it just folds right up. Put it in the in the door of the truck there and forget about it until uh, it's time to use it. So anyway, since we're going to be talking about Lord Derby's Eland today, just email the word Eland, that's Eland, to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com and you are entered to win today's Lone Star Ag Credit prize pack. Let's knock out a quick break here. Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason joins us next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Listen to the radio. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. My daddy saw the moon and heard the sound of the storm. It called out his name and it called his son's name too. Man, I love the when I go out dancing with the woman at the bar. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Mountain Safari Club. That's the music of Whiskey Town, taking me back to uh, high school. And you know, I asked my wife the other day. We, we took the kids to the uh, the deer lease for a little social distancing last weekend, and I fired up Strangers Almanac uh, record by Whiskey Town. I think it was released around '97 if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, I asked Aaron, because I wore that record out, and I asked her, you know, what CDs, because back then, you know, we all had CD players, and I asked her which CDs did she listen to the most in high school, and her response was probably the Cranberries. <laughs> I was like, okay, I, they had some good songs. It certainly could have been worse. She could have said Britney Spears or something, but uh, we definitely didn't, listen to the same style of music when we were younger. <laughs> it was rock and roll and country for me and, and mostly pop for her. But it's funny because fast forward to today and uh, one of the things we enjoy doing most is going to a uh, honky-tonk and seeing one of our favorite uh, country acts. You know the type of place. It smells like stale beer, there's neon lights, and you can still get a Lone Star long neck for a couple bucks. Man, I hope we get to do that again soon once the uh, the world starts spinning back on its axis and we can put this COVID 
pandemic behind us. Whew, I'm ready for it. I tell you what, having the kids home 24-7 on this eternal spring break, not fun at all. Uh, teachers certainly are underpaid, I'll tell you that much. Anyway, let's talk a little hunting and fishing. Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason is on the line, set to make his return to the show. And this segment is brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Corey, always great to visit with you, my friend. Thank you for making time for us today. Thanks for having me, Cable. Good to see you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, first of all, before all of this, uh, well, this this world pandemic that we've seen, uh, you actually was probably was spring break. I know you have a daughter, and your family uh, got out of Dodge and went to Big Bend. We did. We had a trip planned a year in advance. Uh, we took a family trip out there to Big Bend to show my my wife and daughter that part of the world, the beautiful part of Texas out there, and. Uh, Left one week and came back a week later to a different world, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you probably left pretty quick after the uh, DSC annual meeting then. I did. We had uh, AGM on Thursday night, and on Friday afternoon, when my daughter got out of school, we had the car packed and headed west. Yeah. And that was probably the last time that I was like out in, the, in a, you know, like in a group setting where we, when we had that meeting. And since then, it was like, it wasn't a day or two later. And it was like, oh, that's no longer a thing. <laughs> Yeah, you saw at the meeting that there were a few people that were kind of already gently moving in that direction, you know, with some of the kind of elbow bumps instead of handshakes and all of that. So yeah. it was kind of starting to move that way. I know I had a bottle of hand sanitizer, but that was all I thought I needed at that point in time. Now we, <laughs> So Big Ben was great. I'm sure it was uh, pretty easy to practice social distancing out there. It was the perfect place for social distancing. <laughs> I think we made 10 or 15 miles a day in the mountains. and uh, Timing was great. We got to see the Ocotillo and some of the barrel cactus and prickly pear blooming and rained every evening and the desert was just alive. It was absolutely beautiful. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's, it is a beautiful place out there. Um, as far as what's going on right now, it's turkey season. All these, you know, I'm looking at people's travel plans and how this pandemic and uh, COVID-19 is affecting the hunting community. And we're immune from a lot of things, I think, as a, as a community. But this is not one of those things, and that you know, from a travel standpoint, um, people are canceling hunts, and and that's unfortunate. I, I know I have one coming up in South Africa for Cape Buffalo, which we've talked about previously, and that's in July, and I'm kind of just in a holding pattern. I'm not I'm not going to cancel until they tell me, hey, you you can, you're not going to be able to come, you know, for health reasons. So it's a shame, but I think uh, we're seeing people starting to, to cancel at an alarming rate, and. I don't know, maybe they just need to hold off and and uh, wait for, you know, communicate with the outfitter and, and see what happens. You know, that that's certainly what I would urge. You know, hunters as a community and generally speaking are resilient people. They're they're pretty well prepared, well informed, make decisions based on good information and mm-hmm. and I say that in a very favorable way because of those kinds of concepts and, and, and methods, if you will, are really needed at this point in time and I have the great pleasure of working very personally with hunting associations and outfitters all over the world and have spent the last several days and then a couple of weeks prior as we saw this coming to reach out to them and uh, to, to, to better, more personally understand the impacts they were already feeling and then, of course, staying in touch with them as we move forward this and then also asking what they need, uh, recognizing that they are the front lines of conservation and anti-poaching and habitat conservation projects and restoration projects do not happen in their absence. And so, mm. you know, many of them have spoken about, uh, you know, a few cancellations, but 
mainly some postponements, but just the communication in which they're trying to have very personally with every person that's coming to hunt with him. And again, if this is Canada, spring bear and fishing trips this time of year, or if it's Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Africa, clearly where their season is kind of ramping up here in the very near future, you know, the, the overall theme and return comment is number one, the need for communication, not assuming that this is going to be the same status quo and 60 days or 90 days or midsummer and really urging an abundance of caution of just canceling trips rather to be in communication and then to, if if it looks like, a, you know, a border closure or flight delays or things are going to occur, then just postpone, you know, do not cancel. And I really can't urge that enough because those conservation dollars are needed, you know, when they're not hunting in a concession in Canada to Zimbabwe, those fees still are incurred upon those outfitters and those anti-poaching dollars, et cetera, are still incurred. So mm-hmm. for the hunters to just completely pull away uh, could result in the collapse of things. And so we have to be really smart about our reaction as well. That Cape Buffalo hunt is a, yeah, a dream hunt for me. And so I'm going to wait till, the, till there's no other option. Um, but uh, so who knows what the future holds, uh, hopefully for the sake of conservation, uh, this thing will, trend in the opposite direction quicker rather than or sooner rather than later well you know there's two impacts there's the the hunters that hopefully will make a really smart and wise decision of if it ultimately comes to it will postpone and not cancel but then there's also the direct financial uh benefits or rather impacts that are occurring right now like the nra convention being canceled you know as hunters we need a very healthy nra and that's it's been canceled and we've seen we had the ducks expo that was coming to uh, north texas and that's been canceled. Yeah. And just for example, later this week, I was to be in British Columbia for their hunting association meeting of guys and outfitters. That's canceled. That's their annual fundraiser and meeting. And so there's the very immediate impact as well as those organizations that we need uh, to be very healthy for the conservation of all of the species that us as hunters and anglers care about. So there's a direct financial impact there. And so there's sort of a call of action, if you will, for hunters as a community to further continue and to be mindful of that and continue to support these organizations that desperately need help to keep them going and functioning at the level at which we need them. You know, we'll look for the benefits in some of that too, but it's getting people outside a little bit. Well, and I think there's a silver lining. Maybe some people who, for whatever reason, kids, work, just life, or uh, maybe their, their mentor passed away, whatever. But I think there's an opportunity for people who've gotten out of hunting and fishing to come back to it. Uh, through through this unfortunate uh, pandemic. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. We were looking at uh, awesome news updates that, that come out, and we saw that I believe it was Arkansas had uh, sort of their response to social distancing was uh, no fishing license required right now. You know? Oh, wow. And it's like, what a brilliant <laughs> move by the state. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> Get people outside in a very healthy way. Very cool. Um, well, let's shift gears here. I, w- I want to talk about some of the, the international stuff. Um, something that's kind of caught my eye and I know DSC's uh, put out a uh, press release on it, but what is going on with the UK or I don't know, it might be specifically England, but with their, I know they've proposed some pretty hardcore African trophy importation stuff. Can you give us the latest on that? You bet. Yeah. So for those that maybe aren't familiar with it, they produced what they called a call for evidence, essentially came from a questioning of the conservation benefit of, of hunting, and more specifically, to use their term, trophy hunting. Mm-hmm. 
And associated with that, uh, obviously, we had the opportunity, we being an organization, DSC, as did many uh, conservation organizations, partners, African ministries, etc., responded to that with providing copious amounts of information that have clearly demonstrated for decades and decades and decades, both in Africa and around the world, the demonstrated benefit of well-regulated legal hunting on conservation, conservation of habitats, conservation of game species, conservation of non-game species, in its entirety, all of those sorts of things. And I think essentially, I think they were overwhelmed when they sent that out. There was a general sense of this is just a facade. They sort of have already predetermined the outcome of this, uh, this you know, this question, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of African ministries went to work, submitted letters and information on their own behalf, because that's one thing the UK never did. Uh, many governments are essentially negligent of this, Western world governments, of not asking Africa what Africa needs. Rather, the Western world and their arrogance determines what they think Africa needs in the, in the absence of Africa. It's a very, uh, very arrogant way to do business. But nonetheless, unfortunately, that's what happened, and that's what's happened here. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people spoke up. We provided our own very strong demonstrated case letter, and then we've also joined a number of partners American Wildlife Conservation Partners, CIC, a number of organizations have responded collectively as well with additional information. And so the UK uh, essentially continued to open it, um, delayed the closure rather, and added more time. And it's under consultation at this point. So no no finding, if you will, or no outcome has taken place yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we're all sort of anxiously waiting to see what the UK does. Again, they have so much information that if they choose to make the, the the decision to not allow the importation of legally taken animals, uh, it will be a completely social decision and a decision made in the absence of science. Man, I don't know how many or what percent of, let's just say, trophy hunters that head to Africa come from the U.K., uh, but, I mean, I know the majority is, is American hunters. To, to try to put forth such a ridiculous thought is, is mind-blowing. It is, and it's very similar to like Rep- Representative Grijalva out of Arizona, you know, to introduce the Cecil Act, uh, which again, he did so out of complete ignorance of conservation, and he never asked Africa what Africa needed. He never once consulted with an African wildlife minister or an organization that actually lives on African soil. He certainly didn't put his boots in Africa uh, and made a decision based on a special interest group in which he was speaking for uh, an act that will harm African conservation issues and incentives and uh, ill-informed, but those things continue to take place. Most recently, there's a similar uh, prohibition to legal import of legally taken animals uh, was put in the state legislature in Connecticut and again in California. So yeah. if approved, they cannot even be legally regulated. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that California piece. Uh, so in taking a step further, does this and we kind of hit on it last week a little bit, but uh, I figured you'd have more information on this. So can you possess trophies that were taken prior to this? That's a good question. And I think much of that will be up to interpretation and how uh, how far they were to go with it. You know, California had this same bill in 2018, and it got all the way approved all the way to the governor's desk. And the governor uh, signed a letter that said, essentially, although I completely agree with this, uh, if approved, it cannot be legally enforced, which means federal law allows for the import of legally taken animals, mm-hmm. so the state cannot restrict it. Mm. Uh, so 
I believe that they would like an interpretation probably all the way down to a knife handle, clearly the ivory tusk or whatever it might be in someone's trophy room or house. Um, although currently it shouldn't get there, but the point is, is they continue, although again, unenforceable at the federal level, they continue to chip away at the edges until they'll get some judge ultimately that will go down the road with them. No, oh, just like uh, the, the circuit court judge that kiboshed the grizzly hunt when science said, hey, we have recovered. We have enough grizzlies. We have too many grizzlies in certain areas. We need to have a hunt. And they even draw. They, they even had the draw. We had hunters that were ready to go, like, and then like a month or two before it happened, just totally canceled it. Well, not only was that hunt approved, it should be celebrated as one of the greatest conservation success stories in that part of the world in recent history, where the states had successfully recovered the animal, the Fish and Wildlife Service acknowledged and approved their recovery, and then one judge, federal judge Dana Christensen, said no, because they haven't been recovered across essentially their whole range, which makes no sense. The law doesn't even require for that. But he made Well, their whole range includes Texas. <laughs> yeah, it was just ridiculous. So. Uh, it was just a way to stop the hunt is what it was. No doubt about that. Um, Corey, we do need to work on a quick break, but I still want to get into Dallas Safari Club suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then also Africa's Big Five possibly becoming the Big Six if uh, the anti-hunting community has it their way. Are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? You bet. Perfect. And that segment was proudly brought to you by First Light's new Ash Gray lineup. You know, uh, in Africa, especially the uh, pHs and a lot of the hunting community wear muted tones. Ash Gray fits that bill to a T. You're going to see me wearing it um, if I'm lucky enough to get to go to Africa this summer, pending uh, how this pandemic plays out. But that's here nor there. Ash Gray is awesome. From the backcountry to the bar and everywhere in between, Ash Gray has you covered. Check it out along with First Light's entire lineup at firstlight.com. First Light, go further, stay longer. We'll be right back with more from DSC's Executive Director, Corey Mason, on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, They've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's, once again, the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. Yeah, I think I'll make me some homemade soup. 
I'm feeling pretty good and that's the truth It's neither drink nor drug induced No, I'm just doing alright And it's a great day to be alive I know the sun's still shining when I'm close This pandemic be damned It is a great day to be alive indeed No doubt about that uh, That is the music of Daryl Scott you probably are familiar with the Travis Tritt rendition. I like the original a little better myself. But that's here nor there. It is great to be talking outdoors with you today. And we're going to pick it back up with Dallas Safari Club Executive Director Corey Mason here momentarily. Some interesting stuff to get into, no doubt. And this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club. I'm a proud member, and here's why you should think about Joining our ranks because DSC is the worldwide leader in big game conservation, and they do it through their mission statement of hunters' rights, education, and conservation. For more information, head over to biggame.org and check us out. We'd love to have you. And by the way, that segues us perfectly into what I want to discuss now. Uh, Let's pick it back up with Corey Mason. And Corey, DSC actually sued the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here not too long ago. Um, tell us why that was necessary and where things currently stand. Absolutely. So since November of 2017, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not been processing legally taken animals, specifically elephant import applications from Africa. Again, as required by federal law, Endangered Species Act, Administrative Procedures Act, numerous federal requirements. They have not processed either approved or denied a permit since November of 2017. And so uh, after providing a notice of intent uh, to move to litigation and then of course then moving to litigation, we're in the process now uh, to to continue this on. Actually hearing was scheduled uh, and it's been of course delayed as seemingly everything else in the world with the COVID Mm-hmm. interest right now. Uh, but that litigation is moving forward. And again, it's associated with the Fish and Wildlife Service specifically not following their own requirements and federal processes to process permits. It's not about the approval, but rather it's about simply requiring them to follow their own regulations and process a permit if it's approval or denial, but to process them. Hmm. Well, and you and I have talked previously about uh, my, my Bontabuck that's just sitting over there in South Africa. That uh, yeah. I can't get back. So I'm, I mean, I'm living that. I'm, I've got something there that's mine that I want. And nope, sorry, sorry about you, Cable. Uh, that's the fear of this as well. That if this is continued to uh, persist, then what else is next? Uh, Bonnie Buck is a great example of it. But what if it's sheep or bears or it could be anything? It doesn't have to be a foreign exotic species. It could be something as locally as within uh, North America, but yet not within the U.S. You know, so when there's this latitude of judgment that can be applied outside of federal requirements, that's a problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I was going to ask you, so we had on Brian Lynn of the uh, Sportsman's Alliance last week and talking about these state level um, anti-trophy, like being in possession of of African trophies. uh, He even said like one New York bill has incentivized people to basically be narcs like to the tune of a $500 reward if you report somebody who has in their possession one of these trophies I don't know if you'd heard of that or not but uh, I found that pretty fascinating to the depths that they will go 
never ceases to amaze me. No, it's really sad, you know, whenever, again, when you have number one Sportsman Alliance as a, as a strong partner to DSC, they're a great organization. We appreciate the work they do and, and support each other in a number of capacities. And and so their work is, is really good, a good organization. Mm-hmm. And, and we work with them on a number of fronts. And, again, when you look at some of these things like the New York Bill or Connecticut or Florida last year with black bears or uh, California, all of these are a result of someone that is a simply – essentially just trying to fulfill a self-interest, but they guise it under a conservation or more specifically a preservation attempt. And I don't know if they fully understand the impact to a state game and fish agency, what it would be, uh, or if they just simply don't care and they just want their agenda fulfilled. Uh, but either way, they're they're fairly ignorant, ill-informed uh, pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the giraffe as far as, you know, we've got the big five, uh, everyone's aware, uh, lion, leopard, rhino elephant and uh, cape buffalo it seems like it seems like the giraffe is like the next thing in, the, in their crosshairs that they want to try, try to make it like the big six yeah that's that's very observant of you cable we saw a, a pretty perverse act uh at this last sightings conference of the parties in geneva uh when dsc was represented there in my attendance and richard cheatham of our foundation and others that attended conservation partners and what we saw is uh, the listing, the uplisting of giraffe, um, and what was interesting is biological data did not support that. In fact, the CITES sec- uh, secretariat there, uh, in fact, their initial sort of response was is that, you know, we don't support this based on science. Uh, but nonetheless, it was still supported and still approved, voted on by countries that have, like Kenya and et cetera, that have so poorly manage their species that theirs are doing poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Southern African countries that have an increasing population of giraffes, et cetera, et cetera, you know, their votes were just drowned out by those that don't even have and or have well-managed giraffe. And so you're exactly right. It is a species that has been brought into the crosshairs by organizations like Humane Society and Born Free, et cetera, and one that they are trying to do everything they can to remove uh, the hunter's role in conservation for that species. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you, you look at these these instances like the giraffe, and they're very good at saying, well, the giraffe's endangered, right? The other side, the, the anti-hunting sure. faction saying, well, the giraffe's endangered. And, and then they put that out there. Well, yeah, it's endangered in X, Y, and Z areas because it was so poorly managed. But in, you know, the rest of the of Africa, it's doing great. And so it's not, right. it's not reality. You can't say it's endangered across the board yeah in areas that it is not doing well well uh, we as hunters and conservationists would never dream of hunting one there uh but but they they put that out there and and then people that don't really have are not educated on the subject just take it at face value and they're masters of that uh they'll guise it under some blanket statement that's I have truth at best mm-hmm. uh and then the, like what we saw at sightings they'll have a country that either doesn't even have giraffe or has poorly managed their giraffes, such as Senegal or Niger or Chad or Nepal or somewhere like that, to be the champion for that, uh, Kenya, and mm-hmm. then take it forward. And again, they're not even a stakeholder in giraffe management at this point in time. Uh, yeah. And they will do it at the detriment of the, the stakeholders, such as Tanzania or Zim or Mozambique or Namibia, that have robust populations of giraffe, like South Africa, increasing populations. Oh, yeah. Their voice is drowned out by someone that's not even really a stakeholder in the conversation. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's just like um, what we saw when 
and it's unfortunate, but this is the reality. Well, when we had the uh, Scimitar Horned Orcs, Dama Gazelle, and uh, the Addicts, the Three Amigos, you know, they got drew the ire of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and before you know it, they're telling Texans what they can and can't do on their own ranches. And what happens when they say they make the permitting process so difficult? Well, these landowners, these these ranchers, these these um, hunting operations, they still have to feed these animals. So what do they do? That a wholesale, basically, hey, uh, ten cents on the dollar. You want to harvest uh, scimitar horned orcs? Come and get them because we're not, you know, we can't afford to, to keep them around. And it, that could very easily happen in South Africa, for example, with giraffes. That's right. If they have no economic value, they have no return, then there's no place. They would rather manage for another species, and that other species could be cattle to the detriment of giraffe. And so whatever has the greatest economic value to the landowner, whatever case it may be, a Texas landowner or a landowner in South Africa, that's what they're going to manage their habitat for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that simple. Yeah, and you know the terminology that we always use. If it pays, it stays. I, I can't tell you how many uh, anti-hunters will get on social media and comment that we're all full of crap and we're just bloodthirsty. Uh, we do it for sport. We don't eat the meat. You know this, that, and the other. Um, but uh, but yeah, that they don't they don't even care to look at the uh, the facts that are out there. It's and and for the technology that we have today, everything's readily available right there at your fingertips. It's just pure ignorance. Well, it is. And what's unfortunate is, you know, we have many of these conversations start here stateside. uh, And it's easy for folks to very misinformed, start want to have a deep conversation, philosophical conversation about Africa when they're not even prepared enough to have a conversation and understand a demarcation in time in North America, 1937, the Wildlife Restoration Act, when those that were closest to the wildlife resources, hunters said, and the industry associated with it said, we need to create a consistent revenue stream for conservation actions in North America. We self-taxed ourselves to create this revenue base to fund state game and fish agencies. And so every action that's taken place since then is in the back and support of hunters. People refuse to acknowledge that and see it. And it's an easy thing to put in front of people and say, let's talk about right here in our backyard. Let's talk about turkeys or elk or deer or whatever else mm-hmm. before we even start talking about Africa. Because let's look at some successes right here under your notes first. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're good partners with Shane Mahoney and Conservation Visions, and Shane and I have a lot of conversations about sort of this relationship that people in North America have with, with animals in general. Now, more specifically, like the relationship that we have with uh, with domestic animals, say, for example, pets, mm-hmm. uh, dogs, cats, maybe even horses to some extent. And then we try to relate that to continue using our African example to the relationship of a rural African with the wildlife that lives around them. Now, that same relationship doesn't exist with lions and leopards and hyenas and elephants, but yet some people that do not understand that, they want to apply that same relationship, you know? Yeah. And it's not a fair analogy, but yet it's used many, many times in conversations. And just that changing of relationship and our lack of connectedness to the land and an understanding of our reliance to the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, that it comes from the land, People are just simply ignorant to that fact. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Well, I think we are uh, unfortunately about out of time for today. Uh, I do want to encourage folks, if you're not a member of DSC, just go to biggame.org. Uh, DSC puts its money where its mouth is uh, day after day, month after month, year after year. Uh, and I forget the number the, uh, in the millions of dollars that uh, we granted out uh, last year, Corey, but I'm sure you've, you probably 
have that on hand? It was about 2.5. Wow. So again, putting that money back onto the ground for conservation, um, I encourage everyone to to look at that. And uh, and also for the younger generation, you know, there's a new, actually we just voted on and it passed. Um, and, and there's a new, I think it's what a, uh, is it an associate membership or? Yeah, base camp membership, uh-huh. which uh, people can enroll and it's a lower cost. They can receive information about DSC and it's a way to, to plug in early career professionals or those that maybe are just looking to sort of explore DSC. Well, Corey, I certainly appreciate the time. We'll do it again very soon. Stay safe. Thanks for having me, Cable. It's always great to visit with you. So there he goes, our good friend and Dallas Safari Club Executive Director, Corey Mason. Uh, That segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You know, I've been using Josh and Becky Gunther for a long, long time. So whether you want a life-size, that big gobbler that you shoot this spring, or possibly uh, a replica of that 10-pound bass, They've got you covered. You can find them at gr8mounts.com. Up next, we check in with big game hunter and conservationist Britt Longoria, how her hunt of a lifetime ended up with her and her husband stranded in Cameroon due to coronavirus. We discuss next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. There's no fortune at the end of the road that has no end. There's no returning to the spot. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at threecurl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Hi, folks, this is Zane Williams. Thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoors show. Change your mind. Dixie, darling, did you find what you were after? A greener pasture, a wilder blue. When I think about the things that really matter, I always wish that I had mattered more to you. Dixie Darlin', the name of that one there. Brand new stuff from Hill Country, a new band formed by our good friend Zane Williams. Uh, Paul Eason, also a part of Hill Country. So really digging the new record. I think it's going to hit Spotify next week, already available on their website. Be sure to check out the record when you get a chance. I think you're going to love it. I know I do. Uh, I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thanks for tuning in to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. We're about to be joined by our good friend and world traveler, big game hunter, conservationist, Britt Longoria, to talk about her bucket list hunt of a lifetime that truly turned into kind of a nightmare, to be honest with you. Um, But before we do so, this segment is brought to you by Vortex Optics and the new Vortex Wear lineup all of the awesome branded gear that you've come to love from Vortex. They've got 
tons of great t-shirts, hoodies, caps, uh, even button-up casual shirts now. Um, it's the Vortex Wear lineup. And with any apparel purchase from Vortex, you'll get 20% off when you use my promo code LONESTAR20. So, yeah, save you some money there. Check it out, Vortex Wear. Um, moving along here, let's go ahead and welcome Britt Longoria back to the show, who finally has made it back home to Texas safe and sound. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cable. Man, the experience looking back on it, uh, now that you're home safely, is one that someday you'll be able to laugh about. Um, but my goodness, I'm glad it, I'm glad it was you and not me. I know, I know. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, just a little background. You've been on the show before, and we've talked a little bit about your upbringing, but you've traveled the globe hunting big game for most of your adult life, uh, a a living legacy that you probably attribute to your late father. Absolutely. Dad brought me up very blessed and, and very much a equal to him as far as a hunting buddy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it wasn't a a regular relationship as far as, okay, well, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And da, 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 da. It was very much a, hey, I'm going on this bench. You want to come? Cool. Let's go. You know, it, it was, it was our, our world and, and our experience. So with, with him traveling since I was a little girl, um, all over the world on his hunting adventures and then coming, um, growing literally physically <laughs> to be able to do, do them, um, right by his side as well. And then, uh, now it's my husband, Ricardo. Mm-hmm. And so Britt, how many times have you been to Africa? Oh goodness. Um, I forgot, maybe... I forgot you lived there. Yeah. So that don't count that, but how many safaris? Okay. Have you <laughs> Um, ones where we actually went versus me guiding or or hunting as part of my career, I would say personal safaris, maybe 30, 40. Uh Okay. So a lot, a lot. And how many, or have you taken all the big five at this point? I've not. No, no, just, um, all different kinds of Buffalo, Cape Buffalo, Nile Buffalo, Western Savannah, Buffalo. Um, and then uh, hippo, crocodile, and leopard. Okay. No lion, no rhino, no elephant. Sure. And I think last time we spoke, it was um, relatively quickly after the leopard hunt because it kind of got some negative publicity. Uh, people get those pictures and, you know, here's an attractive woman that shot a leopard and, and they don't understand it. It just doesn't make sense to them. Um, and I'm supposed to go to South Africa in July for my first uh, buffalo hunt and who knows if that's even you know going to be a possibility at this point so you know, the whole hunting community is is kind of up in the air i know it's really it's really wild i mean truly when when we left for cameroon the beginning of of march mm-hmm. there were lots of jokes about you know the kong flu and stuff in china and stuff like that going on but it it seemed very distant and I even mentioned on my social media that I was like, man, I'm not worried about getting sick, but I'm worried about getting stuck. Mm-hmm. And careful what you wish for, because that's exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. Um, we've gone ahead and postponed our hunts for for basically the summer, because that's really the big time that we're able to travel a lot. Yeah. So we've postponed it, but it 
it's because it was at the beginning of July. So I would say just kind of keep in touch with with yeah. your outfitters and definitely don't cancel it because these guys, I mean, this is their whole whole world. So just postpone it if necessary, but definitely stay in touch with them and you know, kind of keep them abreast on what's going on as far as U.S.-based travel restrictions and ask them what's going on in their country mm-hmm. as far as Americans going over. But when we flew when we flew back from Cameroon, once we landed in the U.S., we were flying on just regular domestic airlines. There was maybe, goodness, there was maybe like five people and then three airline staff, pilots, different, you know, people that were basically flying deadhead to another um, airport yeah. to pick up a plane to take it somewhere else. So there's still flights internally, and I would say. Well, you'll probably be be good just as long as you make sure that you understand that the precautions are are totally different as far as you know hand sanitizers and face masks. And oh, well, I'm definitely afraid of getting it because I have asthma, so that's like one of those pre-existing conditions, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've been taking it pretty seriously, but yeah, that hunts at the end of July. So uh, you know, like like you said, and like the message needs to be for the entire uh, hunting community is just postpone, don't cancel, because Eventually, this is going to, and it might not be by July, but eventually uh, some sense of normalcy will return and, you know, bucket list hunts that people have booked, uh, we will be able to, to go on them. And and so let's talk about this specific hunt that you were on, uh, Giant Eland or Lord Derby Eland. The, the Giant Eland. Yeah. And then the nickname of it is Lord Derby um, with like an apostrophe S because he was he was the discoverer. So it's like cool explorer name history. It's his. And how did he get <laughs> a Lord at it for his title? I have no idea. That's I think that'd a fabulous be cool. question. Just discover a species and then you're like, Oh, there's guys a Lord now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but it is like one of the most, when you think about these African antelope, it's like one of the most regal, mysterious. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a very, it's an expensive. It's not like the one I shot in South Africa. I think you can shoot the one I hunted. I think the price tag, if you were to harvest one, I think it's like twenty five hundred, twenty seven fifty, something like that. Um, which is crazy because if you sh- wanted to hunt an eland in Texas, you're like ten grand or something like that. You know, people don't realize. <laughs> and I do want to make that point. Like a kudu in uh, South Africa, fifteen hundred bucks. Texas, fifteen thousand. So, you know, I mean, that's your whole safari. You could go on a safari for, for the price of one kudu in Texas. I think people need to understand that it's uh, it, it can be uh, very affordable to, to go on a great safari. Well, especially South Africa. I mm-hmm. mean, you can go on a great, great South African hunt for the same price as a really good elk hunt. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. But so the Lord Derby's Eland, um, what is different? about this eland than say the one that i've got on my wall or one that you've likely shot uh, many times over in other parts of africa it has an emotion to it it has a grandeur to it and i I recommend anyone who's not seen it to go and google it because it's just stunning it's kind of a a reddish orange color with white thin white stripes going down it's kind of its back down to its its belly on kind of side. like bongo-ish this, kind of but like thinner yeah, yeah i kind of think that that's a good one and then um a big giant black neck with a big giant dewlap that just swings 
as it comes walking through the brush. I mean, it's phenomenal. Uh It's the largest antelope species. So it's not only tall, but it's stocky and big. It's a lot of legs. And then its horns are that beautiful spiral. And the spiral horn can go, oh, geez, probably a good one is probably over 40 inches. Um, an exceptional one was like 48 inches. So significantly bigger than the other eland, the, the common eland. Yeah. So uh-huh. you've got the color difference and then the horn length difference. Okay. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. A beautiful, beautiful animal. And and how long had this been on your bucket list? And, and, and how many years had this trip been in the making? Oh, <laughs> I would say this is one of literally a dream hunt. I remember being maybe 10 or 11 years old in Maine at the local Safari Club International chapter, I think it was a Christmas party, and a professional hunter came over who hunted in the Central African Republic, C.A.R., and they did a presentation on the rainforest area and the savanna area animals. And this is a slideshow presentation. I mean, like proper, I think, carousel with like slides, like actual physical slides that you put in the carousel. It's like... <laughs> like Folks younger than you and I life. probably have no idea what that is. <laughs> if it's not on a computer or cell phone, it's like, what exactly. What are they talking about? What's a CD player? Projecting, <laughs> projecting film onto yeah. a projector screen. I mean, it's just it's so vivid in my head. And I remember watching the stuff with, like you say, the bongo and the yellowback diker. And then they came to the savannah animals and they showed this massive eland. And I was just in awe. I, I was just just taken aback by everything about it, the size, the color, everything, the adventure. I mean, he was talking about how this is like deepest, darkest Africa, I mean, above the equator, I mean, right in in like the heart of the area that's not mapped out on mm-hmm. ancient maps kind of thing. There'd be dragons there. And I was like, wow, I want to do this one day. So I'm 34 now. So 23 years this has been in the making. Mm. This has been a dream. This has been a one day I'm going to do this. And it was everything that I imagined. It's truly a humbling experience to walk after these guys that just do not stop. I mean, you're walking after a herd of of buff, or excuse me, of of eland. You're walking after a herd of eland, and it is 110, 115 degrees. Mm. The sky is almost gray with all the dust that's coming off of the Sahara Desert from Chad, which is just up to your north. So breathing is is hard. It's like stuck to your face. I I remember looking at my eyelashes and it looked like I had talcum powder around my nostrils and on my eyelashes. Mm. It was just just absolutely, absolutely wild. So hunting conditions, hard, lots of walking, fairly flat. Uh You can walk on flat ground and you're okay with the heat. 
you're pretty you're pretty good to go. It's just a matter of, you know, endurance as far as okay, we are going to catch up to these guys. And when it happens, then we can kind of make a plan to get around. Then, you know, let's get into position and then take the shot and then figure out how to get back kind of of thing. But you'd be walking anywhere between five to 10 miles a day, um, generally in the early morning to kind of uh, maybe one or two and then back to camp, have a rest, a quick shower, because that's the most incredible feeling is to have water on your body (laughs) after after 110 degrees in the dust. And then kind of go out again um, for a couple hours in the evening for some of the other planes game that might be closer to to camp. Okay. And now I did see that lion was also on your on your list uh, as far as things yes. that you wanted to hunt on this trip. Yes. Well, so that's interesting because, um, and this has nothing to do with hunting, but as a kid, and I'm 38, so World Cup 1994, when the entire world comes to the United States for you know soccer tournament. And I've played soccer my whole life, still play, can't give it up, probably should. I get hurt most, seems, Monday nights uh, in our <laughs> over-30 league. But Cameroon had a really good soccer team back then. They had this forward, his name was Roger Mila, and uh, they were called the Indomitable Lions. That was their nickname. And they were like the first African team to ever make it. I think they made it to the quarterfinal, uh, maybe in the 90 World Cup. So they had you know high expectations. And, and I was just infatuated with them, thought they were just, they played a beautiful brand of, of soccer and had a Cameroon hat, but uh, like I said, that had nothing to do with uh, with hunting. But they were called the Indomitable Lion, so it's that kind of like ties it together for me that uh, you're going to be hunting lion in Cameroon. I mean, soccer is huge there. You you're driving around in some of the cities and you see these massive first world soccer stadiums. I mean, you have absolute worst horrible slums that you can think of of people living in little tin shacks uh-huh. and then you have multi-million dollar stadiums so yeah. you know where the priorities are oh yeah yeah but so so lion was on the list too but you didn't end up getting to and didn't have an opportunity to take a lion i didn't we had to cut our safari 10 days short so it was a 21 day safari like uh-huh. this is going to be the most epic of epic safaris um ricardo was bow hunting and he wasn't able to get his lord derby because we ran out of time but um so 10 days into the safari we see all of the headlines and Specifically being in Cameroon, you have a lot more of the European um, access to information. So we were seeing everything that was going on in Italy and Spain and France. And our professional hunter um, lives in Spain but is from France. So he was getting very concerned about his family. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of the spoke to the outfitter. The outfitter said, okay, well, let's make a plan and we need to get you guys out of out of the bush because it's not just a drive to the airport. I mean it's a multi day process. Mm-hmm. It was it was decided at the ten day mark, halfway through that we were gonna go back to excuse me, back to Douala, back to the city. Mm-hmm. And you have gotten your Eland at this point. Yes. And then three days later you're like, we gotta get the hell out of here. Well, it it was a hard call because Ricardo and I wanted to stay. 
mm-hmm. um, everything going on in the state, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that intense. And No, and I'll give you an example. Left, um, my brother and sister-in-law went to a bachelor slash bachelorette party in San Francisco first week of March. And they came back and they had all the symptoms of coronavirus. Of course, they were, they were fine now. You know, they were at casinos playing craps and going out to bars and, you know, doing things that, that you do on a bachelor party. And uh, and San Francisco is like one of those areas where, like, I don't know how many flights out of Wuhan were coming in every day. But, you know, at the time, there weren't even tests available. No no one was taking it seriously because we didn't know any better. Well, I mean, it was a joke. <laughs> like yeah. I said, it was it's the Kung flu and it's like, oh, something going on in Asia whatever. I mean, we've, we've lived through the swine fever and SARS and stuff like that. And we've modified some of our behaviors, but it never, never would I have imagined that something like this would happen, especially while I was overseas. Mm-hmm. I mean, coming back to the U.S. was wild. It was like coming back to zombie land. I mean, the, the difference a matter of a month was because we were stuck over there for another two weeks yeah. <laughs> to come back to the U.S. and have supermarkets and lines out for, you know, getting into the supermarket and stuff should cleared off shelves is just just wild. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you came back to a totally different world than the one you left. Well, yeah. and everything because the rest of us are all experiencing experiencing this day by day, you know, and things change so quickly. Um, with with everything that's going on concerning this. Did you have access to the internet while you were in the bush? Uh, satellite internet. So we'd have a couple hours a day where I could catch up on work emails and kind of touch base with, with family and you know see those headlines coming through and stuff like that. Hmm. Okay, let's do this. Let's work in a quick commercial break. I want to come back and talk about the, the process of getting home, what caliber you took on this hunt and, and hear a little bit more about that as well. So are you cool to stick around? Absolutely. Good deal. And that segment brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Be sure to celebrate tight lines and full stringers this spring with an ice cold Lone Star Beer. Let me see you smile As we both know it's been too long Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Robert Earl Keane bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here, as it is a treat to be talking all things outdoors with you. Today, we are visiting with Britt Longoria concerning her once-in-a-lifetime Lord Derby's Eland hunt, which ultimately would see her and her husband 
stranded in Cameroon for over two weeks. And we're going to get back into that series of events here momentarily. But first, this segment brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology, specifically the Axion Key Thermal Monocular Handheld. This thing is awesome. Still got all those top-notch features like internal recording, a varied color palette, and here's the cool thing. It's the size of your cell phone, literally. It is, it's actually smaller than my cell phone, and it's got a, a small price tag, $14.59.99, and you'll get 20% off and free shipping when you use that promo code LONESTAR when you check out at PulsarNV.com. I love mine, and you're going to love yours. promise you that. Well, let's pick it back up with Britt Longoria, who was nice enough to stick around through the break. Um, certainly enjoying the interesting conversation today, Britt. My pleasure. We, we kind of left it with you guys calling the safari off 10 days uh, early and getting back to, I don't remember the name of the city. Uh, what city is that in Cameroon there? Douala, which is on the coast. And so... What is the flight situation like at that point? Have they has Cameroon started to cancel a lot of international flights, and what are the prospects of actually getting back to Texas looking like? Well, when we left the bush, it was close up camp, do a six hour drive to uh, Nangiri, and Nangiri is kind of the northern, kind of northeastern part of Cameroon. Mm -hmm. From there, we spent the night, flew on a domestic flight from Nangiri to Douala, which is maybe about an hour and a half flight. And at this point, the outfitter recommended that we fly through Europe and then to Mexico. Okay. My husband's Mexican. So we could fly to Mexico because at that point, all of the U.S. flights were being suspended or completely sold out in full from expats trying to get back to the States because Trump said, we want our people home. If you can come home, come home now or shelter in place. Mm -hmm. So it was a mad rush. So we got the flight from Douala to Paris, Paris to Mexico City. That flight ended up being canceled the day, so this is the day before, got canceled, and we are on the flight from Nangiri down to Douala. So we land in Douala and book into a hotel room, and they're like, okay, well, when are you guys going to check out? And I'm like, we have no idea. We have huh. no idea. And our flight, our original flight, was through Brussels. So Brussels then says we were canceling all flights. Then the next day, Cameroon says we're closing all ports of entry, air, sea, and land. Oh, wow. So we're basically stuck. Your worst dreams <laughs> are being realized. Yes. And we have a travel insurance company, and they said, well, you're not in physical security-wise danger, and you're not having a medical emergency. We can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And so then we call, I mean, we're calling the embassy. The embassy says, at this point, we will not, you'll not be evacuated until commercial flights reopen. Um, don't expect a charter flight. So 
we're looking at when commercial flights reopen, all the airlines we've looked at is saying kind of the end of April. And this is <laughs> mid-March. I mean, this is it's like a month away is when they're going to reopen flights out of Cameroon. So we looked at charter flights. That was a cool $308,000 without a guarantee of even being able to land Mm -hmm. in Cameroon. Um, So that wasn't an option. I mean, it was just, it ended up being a wait and see as far as what the embassy said. And like I was joking with you before the, the call, it was like, man, I'm so happy to be an American and have a country that's like, hey, we know we have citizens here. We're going to work hard to get you out. And they did it. They were able to get a charter flight coming out of Ethiopia Hmm. to do kind of a milk run to West African countries and pick up diplomats and embassy workers. And once they cleared the list of those folks, they then opened it up to U.S. citizens. So we were able to get on that charter flight, and that took us to Dallas, and then Dallas on down to Texas. And then they didn't charge you three hundred thousand dollars. Um, no, but it <laughs> it was two thousand. It was just over two thousand dollars. So if you put it into perspective, it's basically double what a one-way ticket would have cost, and it was like a Greyhound bus. I mean, there was nothing special. Yeah. <laughs> about. Yeah. About that plane. <laughs> but okay, so they come and get you guys after two weeks of being basically isolated in your hotel room? Yes. I would have been going stir I'm stir crazy just not being able to like go do basic things. You know, and I can still go outside and go for walks and ride bikes with the kids or do whatever, go to the deer lease. Um, I can still cor- quarantine that way, but you guys literally can't do anything. No, and, and that's why it's so amazing to be home. And be able to open a window and have it not be over 100 degrees out and 100% humidity and be able to get fresh air or go for a walk or you know, clear your head by being outside. When we were in the hotel room, um, they had closed the restaurant and the bar. So they had some room service, but it was basically like a very, very limited menu. So you'd call down and be like, okay, what do you have today? I mean, like chicken or beef. Mm. <laughs> After two weeks of chicken or beef and, you know, being in a probably a 300 square foot room, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still married to my husband, so that's, <laughs> that's good. Oh, <laughs> we survived. Yeah. I haven't killed my kids yet uh, from this <laughs> eternal spring break that just won't ever quit. But yeah, like now I'm expected to like teach lessons and stuff and. I mean, I hated school. I, once I graduated college, I was like, I'm never doing that, having anything to do with that ever again. Uh, <laughs> wrong. No, now I am trying to like uh, teach him, my son, like addition and subtraction. And he's not, he's like me. He's uh, not a very patient person when it comes to that. So it's been fun butting heads with him. Um, man. But so I like, and, and I don't know if you're ordering out now that you're back home. Uh, like to take out, but I'm afraid of like that stuff too. Like just what if they cough on my food and I'm, I'm like, now I've only done it twice since this whole thing. And I want to support local restaurants and stuff, but uh, I'm afraid of just the germs that that's, could be on, on the uh, packaging. So I'm sure that was yeah, something that you guys were cognizant of and 
probably didn't. I don't know if you had the proper cleaning supplies to even disinfect anything over there. Um, I went, so over the two weeks that we were in the hotel room, I had gone out twice mm-hmm. to a, like a kind of, kind of like an expat supermarkets. They had more European stuff rather than just a local African market. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get, you know, powdered um, soap to be able to wash clothes in the sink. And I was able to get sardines and some mm-hmm. <laughs> canned tuna and, you know, just stuff just to be able to, to eat other, anything other than just chicken or beef oh, wow. <laughs> for, for two, two meals hmm. a day. And it was, it was like camping. And I think the hardest thing was, was just not knowing when we'd be able to leave. It sounds like the yeah. worst camping trip ever. I like to look at the stars and have a campfire when I'm camping. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still had to like do dishes and stuff like that. So uh, it kind of felt like camping. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I think I think that's the biggest thing that for people that are in quarantine or social distancing right now is to feel grateful for the little things that you do have. Like you said, like you can go outside, you can take a walk. You can go to the tier lease, whereas there's other folks that are in cities or, you know, in the U.S. or in Europe or in China or wherever that that's not even that's not even an option. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for me to be home, I feel so, so blessed that I'm quarantined here for two weeks, even though I, I still can't even see my son until until after the, the two weeks that the doctor recommended. Uh-huh to, you know, just make sure that there wasn't any exposure while we were traveling. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a friend in Austin that also got the virus. He thinks he picked it up at the grocery store. And uh, he has, a, I think, a 10-month-old, and he hasn't been able to hold him in two weeks. He's been quarantined in the upstairs um, bedroom by himself. So miserable, miserable. Looking back on it, do you regret going? No. No, because it was a fulfillment of a of a lifelong dream, and I mean, no time in Africa is ever wasted. So yeah. Even if it was only ten days that we were in the bush, it was trip of a lifetime. And so you got your bull. Um, what what rifle? What caliber did you take on this hunt? Um, I usually don't travel with firearms just because things are getting more and more difficult with mm-hmm. that. So I arranged with the outfitter to provide a Blazer 375 H and H. Okay. And that's and that's what I shot everything with. So I used solids for the smaller planes game, like the Dikers and Orbi and you know, stuff that's probably under forty pounds. I mean it can be little little things yeah. and then it just goes right through any brush and doesn't um mess up the the thin skin but then isn't that crazy like i didn't realize people did that until i went i went to south africa i think my first trip and my buddy was hunting cape buffalo and um blue diker which is like tiniest little diker that lives in the mm-hmm. in the forest there and he used the 375 h&h for the diker and i was like what in the world are you doing he goes no trust me this is it just zips right through him it doesn't damage anything so that's like the norm over there yeah and it's it's such a a, a nice versatile caliber mm-hmm. um that you you truly can have any species hunt with yeah and you would have used the same thing for the lion yes yeah, and I think legally, like I, I don't know about other things, but I know for the Cape Buffalo, because like we we're talking about 
that was my dream hunt I was going on this summer. And uh, 375 H&H is the minimum caliber that you can legally hunt Cape Buffalo with. And I think that's across a lot of African countries, but I know to be fact for uh, South Africa. So I don't... Uh, it, I shot my Eland with a 7 mag, 162 grain uh, Hornady, I forget, maybe a Super Performance or something like that. And it, I mean, it devastated a 2,000 pound animal. So I was pretty surprised by that, to be honest with you. Absolutely. I, I think that with those those types of calibers, you're working with the energy. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit nicer if you have some distance. But in areas where it's thicker brush, you're going to want something with a flatter, shorter ballistic to get through the thick stuff if there is something in the way. Because if you were shooting with that 7 millimeter in a thicker, denser area, you, you might get into some deflection and stuff like that if it, if it hits a branch or mm-hmm. some brush or grass or something like that. When you actually took the bull, talk about about that hunt and and you know you said you had to track on miles and miles every day, but I want to hear more details about how that actually played out on the day that you harvested him. Oh, let's see. I mean, this is not, this is the moment of a lifetime here. Like you, like yeah. you said, you've traveled the globe. You've you've been fortunate enough to take animals all over, you know, every continent. Uh, but this is one that that was at the top of your bucket list. It's it's hard to describe because before I left, I had so much anticipation of the fact that it was going to be almost bittersweet Hmm. because I had dreamed about it for so long. I wanted it to be exactly what I had imagined it to be. Hmm. And I was so excited, but I was so nervous, not hesitant, just, I guess, anxious about the fact that it was coming to fruition. It was going, it was a matter of days that this was going to happen. And we went out just like any other morning and we got onto a herd and we were able to maneuver in kind of like an L shape. Like we would keep going like out and then in and then out and then in to kind of see where this herd was walking. So we were basically following alongside of it and making sure that we were concealed with bushes and like tall grass and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And we knew the general direction that the herd was moving in and they were, they were feeding. So they were kind of lazy and slow and, and not, not on a mission. They weren't going anywhere in particular. And we saw several big bulls. And when you see a Lord Derby Elon bull, there's, so much dimorphism between the males and the females of what they look like mm-hmm. that it's just stunning. That's the one. There, there's no questioning. There's no like, hey, is that a good one? <laughs> it's, it's from the coloration of them and the size and the look between the other animals in the herd. It's like, there, that one. So we got into position um and it was just a matter of waiting and the guide was very very uh strict he was very you know you do not move a muscle mm-hmm. you don't move a finger blah, 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 blah. and i'm like uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and i can just 
feel the sweat flies, which are little tiny sweat bees that the Mopani flies that come and like land on your nostrils or in the corner of your eyes or around around your mouth getting any moisture. They don't bite or sting, but they are super obnoxious because <laughs> they're just buzzing all over your face and they're little tiny, tiny things. Um, so I just, I remember hearing them buzz and feeling them on my face and not being able to move a muscle and then literally feeling the sweat dripping down my neck, down into my shirt and just waiting just in, you know, half my body's in the sun, half of it's not in the sun, feeling the temperature difference on one arm versus the other arm and being up on the sticks, waiting for this one animal to hopefully come and step into this one shooting lane through the brush in order to be able to make the shot. It gets overlooked, the the waiting game. And, uh, and I'll be honest, I never experienced that to the degree that I have in Africa where the pH is like, okay, there's the uh, clip springer. He's up on this ledge. We're going to wait for him to move. Well, that takes two hours. You know, right. and you have to be still, like you're saying. I mean, your my, my back starts hurting, and personally, that's that's like my ailment. But it uh, it's physically demanding. There's no doubt. Well, and it's mentally demanding. Mm-hmm. It's it's you're you're in this almost surreal stage where everything is so intense. You can hear your breathing. You can feel your heart rate. You can feel drops of sweat running down your skin. You can you know, hear the person next to you shift their weight and it sounds like a, you know, someone eating potato chips next to mm-hmm. you. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It's just moving against the grass. And to be able to have to calm yourself down, have to mentally work through shot placement and thinking about what you're going to do, what's it going to feel like, what's it going to look look like, what's the sight picture, you know, hold the gun a certain way, calmly squeeze the trigger, don't pull it, you know, all of that is just going a mile a minute. And then you get to this point where that animal steps out and I see it and he doesn't stop moving. And so the pH whistles, he doesn't stop. And so I, I'm like, okay, it's, it's going to pass this opening. They like to whistle over there. They don't do the man like we do here. (laughs) (laughs) True. Very true. So he whistles and it doesn't do anything and doesn't stop, doesn't look over, could care less. And then it just, you know, keeps going. And I'm thinking to myself, within a matter of microseconds, Mm. take it, take it. You you need to do this now because you don't know if it's going to be another couple of days till you get another chance. So take the shot now. And I shoot as one, one shot and it was down and it was just I felt like I felt like someone took a two by four behind my knees and just smashed me I mean from a physical standpoint of having this overwhelming tenseness Mm. waiting for that moment for as you say like several hours and then all of a sudden the release of the adrenaline and of the endorphins and of you know, the oxytocin and everything just just flood out of you. Like literally my legs buckled and and it wasn't time for me to buckle yet. Mm. <laughs> the pH 
grabbed my sleeve was like, no, come, come, come. Because if it's one shot and you went down like that, you might have spined him or something like that. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. I was like, no time for me to be emotional or, you know, catch my breath. It's like, go. So we run up and we do another insurance shot. and, And then I was able to truly take in what had happened. And I described it as feeling like a balloon, a party balloon that's been blown up to the maximum capacity and then just let go and just flying around the room, completely erratic, sputtering around and then laying in a little pathetic pile of latex crimpled up on the floor, (laughs) like (laughs) just a little ball of nothing. and. And that's what it was like. It it was like to go from just the intensity of, of everything to being just totally deflated. And man, I, I was, you know, crying, happy tears. I mean, it was just, just a release of all emotions. I mean, it, it was just amazing. And I know that, for, you know, having so, talked to my dad so many times in regards to hunting and, you know, dreaming about this particular hunt, it was really special because I knew that, you know, it was pretty cool because I knew that dad had seen it. You know, he was part of it. Hmm. So that was really, really special too. Well, and there's certainly an emotional aspect of hunting. I'm I'm not saying that I've ever cried after taking an animal, but if I had, it would have been in New Mexico taking a bull elk with my bow after a week of just failed attempt after attempt and the physical, the taxing physical nature, that one got me. So I, I, I totally, I totally get it. And, and, you know, some people it happens more often than others. Uh, but I imagine being in that moment after 23 years of thinking and dreaming about this hunt that, uh, yeah, I'm sure the emotions were flowing, no doubt. Absolutely. And, and I get, you know, Emotional in the sense of recognizing that it was a life taken um, on other hunts that I that I I you know try to get myself into the thought process of that you know thank you animal for giving me this experience mm-hmm. or bringing me to this mountain or bringing me to this forest or giving me this meat for you absolutely and so I know that I'm. Um, I try to be very cognizant of the thoughts and the processes that I go through just on, on any hunt, but this was just over the top. This, this was just a culmination of being in a place I loved with my husband, with, you know, completing a, a dream, truly a dream. Mm-hmm. So it was amazing. Well, so now, the only thing is you have to go back because you still have to get your lion and Ricardo still has to get his Eland. So Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> so someday when all of this is over, I'm going to go get a Cape Buffalo and, and you guys are going to go finish what you started in Cameroon. we got to so. keep keep dreaming. I That's mean, right. It's just part of what we got to do to get through all this goofy quarantine and social distancing. Is you got to have something to look forward to. Well, Britt, it's been uh, it's been a real treat. Thanks for coming on and and sharing this journey of uh, this hunt of a lifetime, which turned into, uh, you know, from going from the absolute peak, the high of highs, to this this valley of 
I'm stuck in a hotel in, in a third world country and <laughs> I don't know when I'm coming home. I mean, it's truly a roller coaster, uh, an adventure and, and one that, like I said, you're probably already smiling, um, smiling when you think about it because you're home safe and sound now. So what a, what an epic trip. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, take care and hopefully you'll get to, uh, to hold that kiddo very soon. I hope so. Counting down the days. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, God bless, Britt. Thanks again. Likewise. Bye-bye. All right. There she goes. Our good friend, Britt Longoria. Um, by the way, if you want to follow along in Britt's adventures, you can find her on Instagram. It's at Britt Longoria, L-O-N-G-O-R-I-A. Uh, always great catching up with her. Glad she's home safe and sound. That segment, by the way, brought to you by All Seasons Feeders, Blinds, and Fire Pits. Yep, um, we were out at the Deerleys last weekend. No better time to have a fire, especially with the kids. We did s'mores, cooked uh, sausage, the whole nine yards. You can find All Seasons' entire lineup of fire pits right there at allseasonsfeeders.com. Uh, man, fortunately, we got to go, got to get out of here. Thanks to both of our guests today, Corey Mason executive director of Dallas Safari Club, as well as Britt. Uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. And thanks to you, the listener, for being here. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. There's a burial ground beneath a cattle herd. Mr. Henry Ford's building me a thunderbird.